But uh, I've got a pop quiz for you to start you off with. A snake, a bird, a wolf, a lion, and a dragon. What do all these have in common? These are all images the Bible uses to describe Satan. As a serpent, Satan deceived Eve and continues to deceive God's people. As a bird, Satan swoops down and snatches away the seed of salvation sown beside the road. As a wolf, Satan attacks to destroy and scatter the sheepfold of God. As a lion, Satan prowls around seeking someone to devour. And as a dragon, Satan breathes fire and does everything he can to destroy God's son. And this is all just the beginning of what the Bible has to say about this very real person of Satan. And it's something you need to know. You need to know about this, what the Bible actually says about the devil, especially since there's so much misunderstanding and and really ignorance surrounding the the figure of the devil from the Bible. Some fall into the trap of thinking that Satan is not real. He's just a, a symbol of evil in the Bible. This, of course, is very pleasing to the very real person of Satan. Tell me, what would be more pleasing to a thief than for you to not think that he's real? And he does not want to be discovered. And so your disbelief is very pleasing. At the same time, others fall into the trap of thinking too highly of Satan. Some people act as if Satan is omnipresent. You know, he's always in their ear, always talking to them, always tempting them. But this is false. This is why you need to get your information about Satan from the Bible and not the TV, not the culture. So many people are actually ignorant about what the Bible really says about Satan. I mean, do you know what Scripture really says about the devil? I'll fill you in a little bit. The devil is not omnipresent. In other words, he's at one place at one time. In Scripture, he's seen as coming and going, coming and going, one place, one time. As an angel, now fallen, Satan is a creature, and no creature is anything like the Creator. And don't confuse the two. He's not omnipotent or all-powerful. He's not omniscient or all-knowing. He's not omnipresent, all places at once. It is true, Satan and demons, who are fallen angels themselves, are are vastly more powerful and knowledgeable than, than us, than you and I. But don't think of them like God. It's not like God and Satan are two equal and opposite forces, one good, one evil, just forever opposing one another. God does not struggle against Satan any more than you would struggle to, to crush a grape in your fingers. There's not a war or battle going on between the two in reality. That being said, Satan is still real. God created him, allowed him to fall, lead humanity astray. This is all part of God's eternal plan. And indeed, there is, from our perspective, a real war going on, a battle. And we have a real enemy to contend with, which is why you need to think biblically and accurately about the devil. Is the devil always in your ear, always surrounding you, always tempting you? No. Out of the six to seven billion people in the world, chances are you've never really encountered the devil. He is one place in one time. And surely he's using that time to tempt and deceive world leaders, not people like you and me. Now you might be wondering, okay, but wait, like, what do you make of all those passages in the Bible which, which talk about Satan as if he is all over the place? What about those? 
Now, it's pretty simple when you stop and think about it. It's very typical for people or writers when speaking about a war to ascribe all hostilities to the opposing leader. And take World War II, for example. You remember, or do you have you read what the newspapers read all the time during the war? Hitler takes Paris. Hitler invades Russia. Hitler bombs London. Did Hitler ever fly a bomber or drive a tank or even shoot a gun? No. But his name was used to refer to all the hostilities coming from the Nazis, of whom he was the supreme commander. And this is how the Bible speaks of Satan. He is the supreme commander of evil, and God has allowed him to rule our world system for now. He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. He is the leader and commander of a countless host of fallen angels and demons, Ephesians 6. He has full possession of the earth's domain, Luke chapter 4. And the whole world lies in his power, 1 John 5. So as Satan sits atop this pyramid of evil, wherever evil is found, you could say that Satan is there. He is ubiquitous in the sense that his reach is all over the place. His influence, his corruption have spread to every corner of the earth. Yet he himself is not in all places. Hopefully that this clears up some misconception you may have had about Satan. And there's more. I want to talk to you about another misconception people have. You've heard the phrase, the devil made me do it. Yeah, I just, I just had to sin here. The, the devil made me do it. But if you are a true believer, if you're saved by the work of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling within you, then this is just completely false. 1 John 4, verse 4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It is impossible for true believers to be demon-possessed. You can be externally tempted or even persecuted, but never internally controlled. Satan can never make you do anything, let alone sin. If there's really a deeper misunderstanding here in regards to the source of temptations in our life, some people go around thinking Satan and demons are responsible for every bad thing that ever happened to them. You know, they get a flat tire. It was a demon. They, they get a headache. Satan gave it to them. They stub their toe. A demon made them trip. They're, they're constantly ascribing to Satan and demons every evil and every temptation that they face in life. Now look, Satan and demons are very real, and they do work to tempt and deceive all people. But they are not responsible for every temptation you face. In fact, I would say they're in the minority. And why would I say that? Well, let, let me explain. Martin Luther, the reformer, he rightly identified the three main avenues of temptation in your life. These are the three sources of temptation you face. The world, your flesh, and the devil. First, the world itself is your enemy, referring to the evil world system dominated by sin. The world and its lusts, which oppose God, are constantly trying to drag you away from following God. And second, there is the flesh, your flesh, which refers to your fallen human nature that is still unredeemed. In other words, oftentimes you're tempting yourself. You don't need anyone. Your temptation to sin comes from within, from your old self, from the, those sinful desires, 
still residing in your heart. Which is why a scripture says you need to deny yourself and not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then third, there is Satan and demons, who indeed act externally to tempt you and lead you astray, just as Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. All three. But here's a very important point. You have these three avenues of temptation in your life. But you never know for certain which one is at work at any given time. In any given instance, you never really know where the temptation is coming from. From the world, from your flesh, from Satan. Now picture this. Picture a huge stone wall, 50 feet high, just miles in both directions, like the Great Wall of China, just this massive wall. You're behind the wall, and you cannot see who's on the other side. But someone from the other side of the wall is shooting arrows at you. And constantly these these arrows are being lobbed over the wall at you in your direction. Now, in reality, you have three different enemies on the other side of that wall shooting arrows at you. The world, your flesh, and Satan. And they're all shooting arrows at you at, at various times. But from your side of the wall, you have no idea who's shooting at any given time. All you see are the arrows. And guess what? From your perspective, it it doesn't really matter who's doing it because the arrows come all the same. So in this situation, it's really a waste of time to stop and think, gee, I I wonder where these arrows are coming from. Rather, you need to just get busy, do something, defend yourself, pick up your shield, run away. This is the picture of spiritual warfare for believers. Before conversion, before you come to Christ, There's no war. I mean, you're on the other side of the wall. You are with the enemy. You're one of them. When you come to faith in Christ, you see your sin for what it is. You turn from it. You turn toward the Savior who died to forgive you. You become his. Then what happens? He transfers you to his kingdom. And immediately you're thrust into this age-old war. And you're put on the front lines. And right away, you you see these arrows coming at you. Arrows of temptation to sin. And who's shooting you? The world, the flesh, Satan? The Bible doesn't really tell us how to discern which one's which at any given time. There's no way to know for certain. And that's probably because it doesn't matter. God doesn't want you worrying about it. He wants you busy fighting, engaged in spiritual warfare. In any instance, what really matters is that you respond rightly when the arrows of temptation come. Now, at the same time, just because you don't know who exactly is shooting you at any given time, that doesn't mean it's worthless to know who your enemies are. It's still extremely valuable to know your enemies, what they're like, what they're capable of, what they do. That way you can be prepared no matter the attack. And indeed, this is why the Bible has plenty to say about these three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and Satan. And you would do well to learn what the Bible says about each of these three. And as you can probably guess, though, today, we're coming to a text in 1 Peter that is going to tell us about our third, and in many ways, supreme enemy, that is the devil. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them now to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. 
Almost done. This will be our next to last message here. Now, right out of the gates, I wanted to clear up some misconceptions about Satan. Because the worst thing you can do is get your information about him from the world or from the TV or the culture. Yet this is what many Christians have done. Instead, we need to think accurately and biblically about Satan. We don't want to underestimate him. We don't want to overestimate him. We just want to think rightly about him. Because it is important. And our passage in 1 Peter, though brief, helps us achieve this right balance. If you are a true believer in Christ, you are in a very real spiritual war. And you need to know what's going on. You need to be made aware of this. And God's words through Peter are just what we need. Read along with me now. Just two verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, and knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. From this passage, as As you are soldiers of Christ, so to speak, I want to present you with four indispensable marching orders for success in spiritual warfare. Four indispensable marching orders for success in spiritual warfare. Understand this, though, that the war is over. The war is over. God, through Christ, has already achieved victory. We'll talk about that more later. But until Christ comes, the enemy is trying to drag as many people down with him as possible. And though we are victors in Christ, God still calls you to be ready for spiritual warfare. And these four marching orders are going to tell you what that means, what that is about. So we have four marching orders for success in spiritual warfare. And the first one is this. Engage your mind. Engage your mind. And look how he starts verse 8. It really comes as a pair of commands. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You see these commands, these two of these, all over the place in Scripture. They're they're very common. The Christian life really starts with the mind. And spiritual warfare starts with the mind. You must engage your mind. If you were here just a few weeks ago, we we just finished up verse 7 in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he just finished telling us not to worry but cast all your anxieties on to the Lord. But then right after that, here in verse 8, what does he say next? Be sober, be alert, be watchful. You see, there's a bit of a tension here where, look, you're not to worry. That doesn't mean you let your guard down. It's like, don't worry, but at the same time, still be watchful. That's the picture here. This first term, be of sober spirit or be sober-minded, we've encountered a couple times already in 1 Peter It basically refers to having full control over your mind. Anything that makes you mentally or spiritually drowsy or dull, you are to avoid. In all areas, God wants you to stay sharp, to keep your head on your shoulders. Like Peter said way back in the beginning of his letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Same word. That's what we should be doing all the time, especially when it comes to this 
spiritual warfare. The second term we have in verse 8 is related. He says, be on the alert. Be of sober spirit. Secondly, be on the alert. It means to be watchful, always looking. It's prescribing a, a state of readiness, this constant watchfulness where you're, you just have eyes like a hawk. You're always engaged, always watching, alert as to what might be going on spiritually by way of temptation. You know, last year, Angel and myself and the baby went to Vancouver for just a little short vacation. Stayed in Vancouver for a couple days, and then we took a, a mini cruise one way from Vancouver to Los Angeles. It was, it was fun. We showed up in Vancouver, though, to the port, the cruise ship terminal, only to find out that we had the wrong port. Our port was just not too far, around the way a little bit, about a mile away. But thankfully, we had plenty of time. We had time. So I'm like, oh, not nah, a big deal. Let's just kind of roll with the punches here. Just walk over there. It's only like a mile. It's not that bad. We're just, we've got time. We can watch, look at the city, see it from ground level. It'll be nice. In hindsight, obviously, you can tell the worst decision ever, right? But we, we set off. And the walk wasn't, it wasn't too long, but little did I know that the second half of that walk took us through one of the worst neighborhoods possible. It's just a terrible neighborhood. You know, you just know when you're walking in, like, this is not safe. We shouldn't be here with the baby. But there we were, pushing this big stroller, pulling along our luggage, looking pretty defenseless, I'm sure, like easy targets. And let me just tell you, though, for that second half of the walk, I was as alert as a hawk. I was watching everyone. Checking our back, watching corners, looking all over the place. I was just, I was engaged. I was alert. You just know when you you don't feel safe. And I was not about to let my guard down. And we made it through. No incident. It was thankfully like in the bright of day, like noon. But that, that attitude, that spiritual alertness is what you need when it comes to this spiritual warfare. All the time, you need to be watching, sober minded, ready spiritually when it comes to sin and temptation. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 makes a similar point. He tells us, you know, we're not in the darkness anymore. If you know Christ, you're not in the darkness. You're in the light, so walk in the light. And then he says this in verse 6, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. See, the lost are characterized by this this spiritual sleep, this, this drowsiness, this stupor. They don't have eyes to see what's going on around them. They can't even see temptation come their way so as to avoid it. They they don't even know. They're blind. It's like they're asleep at the wheel, and they drive right into it, right into danger. They don't know better. They're asleep. But he says, we must not be this way. We need to be alert and sober. Same two words we have in 1 Peter 5. See, when you come to Christ, you have eyes now, and you can see temptation coming your way. It's like you just woke up behind the wheel. And you can see obstacles in your path. You can now turn. You can avoid them. But only if you remain sober and alert. Is there anything more dangerous than a drunk person behind the wheel? They're not sober. They're not alert. They're going to wreck. And spiritually, you're going to wreck behind the wheel if you're not mentally alert, spiritually mindful watching for temptation, like roadblocks coming your way to wreck you. You need to be engaged in your mind to the spiritual battle going on. 
If you're not getting the importance of this, you have to understand that Satan's temptations, they come more often than not gradually. Anyone who's not totally asleep at the wheel can tell that they're about to drive off a cliff and then turn. Anyone can do that, unless you're totally asleep. But oftentimes, Satan works much more subtly. He wants to ever so slightly nudge you closer and closer to the cliff, just very gently, very gradually, closer to the edge. Eventually, though, you're you're so close that it just takes one nudge to knock you over. And see, it takes a truly alert driver to sense that they're just ever so slightly going off course and going down a wrong path. Your mind has to be ready and engaged at all times if you are to make it through without falling. The danger is real. Now, why be sober and alert? Why, Why be looking around for temptation all the time? It's because the danger is real. If there is no danger, no threat, you wouldn't need to be watchful. You know, in heaven, you don't have to watch out for anything. There's no danger. But not so right now. The danger is real because the enemy is real. And this brings us to our second marching order. First, you you need to engage your mind. Prepare your mind for what's to come. Secondly, know your enemy. That's marching order number two. Know your enemy. Look at verse 8 again. He says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here Peter describes the chief opponent in our conflict. Although Satan most often works through the agency of his fellow fallen angels, you still get the best picture of the enemy by studying their commander-in-chief. And just like Hitler encapsulated everything evil about the Nazi party, so Satan does for the whole host of our spiritual enemies. Three descriptions of Satan are given here, each telling you who he is, but really they're also telling you what he does. Let's look at these three. First, he's described as your adversary. This term can refer to a legal opponent, and oftentimes in Scripture, Satan is depicted as the the prosecutor of the saints. Not persecutor, the prosecutor, like like in law, in in a courtroom. He's pictured standing there before the throne of God, constantly trying to convict you of sin and condemn you. But know this. If you have been saved by a genuine faith in Christ, you have turned from your sins and, and followed him, you're his for life, and he has regenerated you. You've been born again in him. If that's true. Then neither Satan nor, nor anyone can ever convict you and condemn you of sin. Because as they do, what happens? Jesus stands up in the courtroom, and he's described as our advocate before the Father, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. That word advocate means defense attorney. Christ stands up, and he merely points to the scars in his hands. And he says, not guilty. And he rests his case. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You are free from charge before the judge because of Christ's atonement. Neither Satan nor anyone can ever bring a charge against you ever again. That's good news. That's reassuring news. 
In the here and now, though, it doesn't stop Satan from accusing us. And although you can, although he can never rob your salvation, he can cause you to stumble and to doubt. So do not listen to him. When it comes to your sin, don't let Satan convict you of your sin because he just wants to drag you away from the cross. Rather, let the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin, which is only going to draw you closer to the cross, which is where you go for forgiveness. Secondly here, our enemy is called the devil. The Greek word is diabolos, which is just a straight translation of the Hebrew satan or Satan. That's where we get that from. The word means slanderer, accuser, one who puts forth false charges against God and his people. It's kind of a synonym. Like Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And thirdly here in verse 8, Satan is like a lion, a roaring lion prowling around, just looking for someone to devour. This is picturing Satan in, in restless and methodical pursuit Roaming the earth, like in Job 1, just roaming the earth looking for prey. Now today, we only see lions at the zoo. But in the ancient Near East, in that world, lions were still commonplace. They were not extinct from land. And as you were traveling from one town to the next, you know, walking that little dirt path from one town to the next, you were in very real danger from lion attack. Can you imagine that? What if these San Luis Hills were infested with lions? Would you think twice about going on a hike? I'm I'm sure you would. And whereas real lions sleep or laze around for about 20 hours a day, Satan and demons never rest. They are tireless in their efforts to spoil God's creation. Specifically, Satan is seeking someone to devour. The word devour means to drink down, just to gulp down. The same word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the whale, the fish, swallowing Jonah. It's a picture, a word of destruction and death. You see, lions, they're not trying to harm their prey. They're trying to kill them. And Satan is trying to destroy everything. Satan, from the beginning, has been trying to destroy God's creation. And in many regards, he has. His temptation and deception plunged humanity, really the whole earth, into sin and corruption and condemnation. Satan aggressively opposes God. He led the revolt in heaven. He tempted Jesus. He will energize the Antichrist. Satan aggressively opposes the truth. He blinds men, snatches away the gospel, spreads deceitful doctrine, sows tares among the wheat, and leads unbelievers into sin. And Satan aggressively opposes believers. He tempts, hinders, schemes, accuses, and persecutes. Now, speaking of believers, though, reading this description might strike fear into some people. You know, what is to stop this lion from devouring us? He seems to be an opponent we don't stand a chance against, so what do we do? How can we hope to defeat him? And the answer is, you can. You can't, alone, that is. But Christ can and actually already has. You see, Jesus, through death, rendered powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. 
You see, for true believers in Christ, Satan cannot devour you. He can never steal your salvation. It's not possible. He can never snatch you from the sheepfold of God. And that's reassuring news. The war is over. The war has already been won, and there's no real reason to fear. Jesus died and rose from the dead victoriously over sin and Satan. And if we are truly in him by faith, nothing can ever stop our salvation in him. That is more good news. But still, like I said, though the war is over, battles rage on. There's still fighting going on. And though the lion cannot kill you, he would still love to afflict you. Satan and demons can still persecute believers and tempt them to sin. They still can make you ineffective for God in this life. They can effectively take you out of the game. And they still can thwart your spiritual vitality and even destroy your assurance of salvation. All still possible. And for these reasons, although Christ has defeated the enemy on the cross, spiritual warfare is still very real and very important in this life. This is why God himself gives you a responsibility. You have a very real responsibility to engage in what's called a spiritual warfare. After knowing your enemy, this is what you must do. You ask, well, what, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? You start by preparing your mind, engaging your mind. Then you get to know your enemy, know your adversary, what he's like, what he does. And then begins spiritual warfare. And our third marching order will help you understand what this is like, what this means. Number three now, marching order number three, stand your ground. Stand your ground. Look at the beginning of verse 9. In regards to this lion, he says, But resist him, firm in your faith. And Peter's command here, it's brief, but entirely sufficient for letting us know how to wage this spiritual warfare. Notice, Peter does not say to ignore Satan. He doesn't say, you know, just, just pretend like he's not there, like he doesn't exist. Even though Satan was defeated on the cross, Peter understands that there's still a real threat that demands a real response. So his command is to resist him, resist the lion. It's a military metaphor used of standing one's ground. It's really a defense word. It's not an offense word to stand against, not strive against. There really is no offense against Satan. He is the most powerful creature that God ever created. And he has centuries of accumulated human knowledge and, and understanding of the human condition. So you don't stand much of a chance against his temptations. You can only hope to stand your ground against his attacks on the solid rock of Christ. That's really your only chance. And you can resist him this way. James, in his letter, gives the identical command, James 4.7, Submit to God, resist the devil, same word, and he will flee from you. Now, what does this really look like, though, in practice? How do I do that? What does that really mean, to, to resist the devil, to fight spiritual warfare? Well, here's where a lot of people go way off. We talked earlier about some of the misconceptions people have about Satan himself, remember? But some also have a big misconception about what it, what it means to resist the devil, to to engage in this spiritual warfare. 
Some try to talk to the devil. They're going around all day, you know, telling the devil to get away from them, rebuking him, scorning him. You see this a lot with the preachers on TV. Some, I think, literally spend more time talking to the devil than talking to God. But there's not a single command or even instruction in the Bible telling us to talk to the devil or even interact with him at all. Remember, he's not omnipresent. He's not hearing all these people talk to him. He's not God. In fact, in Jude, we're explicitly told not to revile Satan and demons. Even Michael the archangel would not even dare to pronounce a judgment against Satan. Like Jude says, people go around reviling the things which they do not understand. Again, you need to let the Bible define these terms, these things, not the world and TV. Yes, Jesus talked to Satan when he was right there with him, but that's it. And it's different for us. There are no instructions at all for interacting with Satan and demons. No magic formulas you can speak. In addition to talking to Satan and demons, some people try to cast them out. I'm sure you've heard about this, see this all, a bunch today as well. You hear about a lot of people trying to bind demons and cast them out. And some people will go really extreme thinking there's a demon in everything. They go around casting out the demon of backaches and the demon of sinus infections, the demon of engine troubles. It's just like everything has a demon. They have to cast it out and pray over it. But once again, this is rooted in some real biblical ignorance. Again, there's not a single command or even instruction for believers to bind or cast out demons. You don't even know how to identify a demon, let alone cast one out. In the New Testament, for example, not every sickness was caused by a demon. Absolutely not, although some people try and say that. Now, some were, some were not. So you have two people. They both have you know, these symptoms of, let's just say, epilepsy. One of them is being caused actually by a demon afflicting the person. The other one is just not, it's just sickness. So how do you know which one's which? You have no idea. Now, I know you're wondering. I know what you're thinking. You're asking, well, what about the Gospels? I mean, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it really seems like they were casting out demons all the time, like all over the place. It seems like it, it was normal, right? It should be normal. Wrong. It was not normal. That's the whole point. It was not for everyone. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, what does it say? Christ, who of course himself had power over demons... Christ called the 12 apostles, or 12 disciples, and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. You see, it wasn't normal for people to see and have power over demons. Christ gave the apostle that special, or rather the apostles, that special authority to do so. It's not normative. This was for the apostles. This was one of the signs of the apostles with healing. And it's not for anyone else. This is why in the New Testament there's zero instructions for doing this, for casting out demons or for binding demons. So once again, these are some misconceptions about Satan and demons. They are real. Spiritual warfare is real. And God does tell you to resist them, but how do you do that? It's not by trying to talk to them and rebuke them. It's not by trying to cast them out and bind them. So then how? What does verse 9 say? It says resist them. Then what does he say? 
He says, firm in your faith. That's it. That's all there is. That's all God wants you to do to resist Satan and demons. Just be firm and steadfast in your faith. This is talking about being resolute in the gospel and the teachings of scripture and the truth. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. How do you resist someone who is full of lies? With the truth. That's all you do. Standing on the truth. If you are deeply, immovably rooted in the truth, what can knock you down? Nothing. That's how you resist. That's how you defend in spiritual warfare. It involves knowing the truth about God, man, sin, salvation, Christ, the Spirit, sanctification, the whole nine yards, knowing the truth, and then resolutely following it, living by it. If you do that, there's zero room for deception. What can he do? You have the truth. That's how he operates, is by deception. There's nothing he can do. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I don't know about this. This sounds like way too simplistic. Spiritual warfare, I mean, isn't, isn't there more to it than that? And there's got to be more than just the truth. Well, I want to take it one step further just to, to show you this from Scripture. So humor me and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 briefly here. I'll try to make this quick detour, but Ephesians chapter 6. Peter gives us a short version, but nonetheless completely sufficient. Resist the devil by standing firm in the faith. James, we already read, he said the exact same thing, chapter 4, verse 7. Also, he gave us the short version. Paul, he's going to say the same thing, but he's going to give us the long version. But I won't make it too long. Ephesians chapter 4 uh, through 6, just for context. Full of practical instructions for living the Christian life. That's what these last three chapters are. Five times Paul uses this image of walking to let you know, here's how to live the Christian life. Here's how to walk like Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, walk in love, so on. Five times in the last three chapters. Then you get to the middle of chapter six, no more walking. He changes up and he he now switches from walking to what? To standing firm. Three times in verses 10 through 17, now he says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And this is so significant. Why the switch from walking, walking, walking to standing firm? It's because of what he's talking about. What's he talking about? Spiritual warfare. Look at verse 10. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Why? so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to there's our word again, resist in the evil day and having done everything to, there's our word again, stand firm. It's just a long version of what Peter said. It's the same goal to resist the devil and demons, the same command to stand firm in the faith, the same source of power, it is God, 
And Paul, though, elaborates on this spiritual warfare concept by using this image of the armor of God. How do you stand firm against the devil? How do you resist him? Well, put on the armor. And what, what's the armor mean? What's that, what's that talking about? I mean, surely he's talking about, you know, casting out demons, getting some holy water, saying a magic formula, holding up crosses. I mean, that's, that's what we learn about on TV, right? That's how you do spiritual warfare. What does he say next? Verse 14. He's going to tell you how to put on the armor, what that means. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, that's the third time, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I'll be brief with this explanation, but notice there are six items mentioned. The first three are always worn in combat. You never take them off. They're just constant realities. The girdle or the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes. They, they never come off. And likewise, in spiritual warfare, you are to constantly rely on the truth, on your righteousness in Christ, and the gospel of peace, which saved you. But do these things ever change? Do these realities ever change? They're constant. And they constantly guard you against the schemes of the devil. The second three items were to be wielded when the, when the fighting actually started. When the battle began, you pick them up. You put them on. The shield, the helmet, and the sword. The shield, faith, like Peter mentioned, is your resolute commitment to God and the gospel. Salvation, like a helmet, protects your head. It's your constant reminder of what Christ has already accomplished for you. Satan cannot steal your salvation, but he can destroy your assurance of salvation, and the helmet protects you from that. And finally, there is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. The only item used for actual fighting, and it's all you need, just relying on the truth of Scripture to defend against falsehood and also to tear down error. When Jesus was met by Satan in the wilderness, he was tempted three times. How did he resist the devil three times? By wielding the sword of the Spirit. That's all he did. That's all he had to do. Satan can only, rather he only operates by lie and deception. If you just stand on the truth and wield the sword of truth, it's over. There's nothing left. That's all you need to do. Jesus himself quoted scripture three times. He recalled God's truth in order to defeat the deceitful temptations of the devil. That's all you need to do. You just need to do the exact same thing. So I hope you get it now. Spiritual warfare, it's not magic. It's not the stuff you see on TV. Although it is supernatural, for sure. And it is spiritual. But it's based on a steady trust and reliance on God, the gospel, Christ, and the truth. When temptation comes, when the enemy attacks, whoever the enemy may be, the right response is always the same. Stand your ground. Do not flee the rock of Christ. Cling to your foundation. Trust God. Remember his word. So listen to him. Nothing will ever be able to to tumble you over, to knock you down. And this is all you need to do, but it's more than enough to stand firm in the faith. Well, we have one last marching order. We'll be brief with this last one. Finishing off verse 9. You can turn back to 1 Peter now. Finish off verse 9. The last marching order, value your allies. Value your allies. 
We'll kind of pick this up in this verse next week a bit. But notice he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It's really valuable to remember that you're not in the fight alone. What's more discouraging to a soldier than to know that he's alone? He's fighting alone. He has no allies. He's, He's been abandoned. But you are not alone. Countless other Christians are suffering and enduring around the world, standing firm against the attacks of the enemy, even if it means accepting a little suffering. First Peter, as you know well by now, is a letter written much about suffering to suffering Christians. These early Christians were suffering and being persecuted for their faith. We already studied how God was using their afflictions to actually refine them and to make them more like Christ. Where was their suffering coming from, though? Peter mentions all three. Back in chapter 2, he mentioned the flesh. Our own flesh sometimes causes our suffering. Back in chapter 4, he mentioned the world. Sometimes the world causes our suffering. Here in chapter 5, he lets us know number three. Sometimes Satan, and by extension demons, are responsible for our suffering. They can afflict and cause us to suffer. And it really is no surprise to learn that Satan would be responsible for some of the church's suffering. Again, we don't have eyes to see with complete certainty. You can try and discern as best you can, but never know for sure. But just to think that Satan and demons inspired the Roman Empire to harshly persecute the early church, it's not a stretch of the imagination. It seems pretty obvious. Yet although Satan and demons do continually oppose us, even inflicting suffering upon us through the world, what did Christ say? about his church in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of Hades would never overpower it. And it still rings true today as you see and hear others around the world suffering, yet standing firm, it should move you to likewise stand firm. Accept what comes your way. Trust God. Avoid sin, even if it involves suffering. Trusting God and being firm in the faith does not free you from hardship, but it does ensure a God-glorifying result. So whatever the consequences in this world may be, sin is never worth it. Stand firm in the faith always and trust God for whatever follows. Well, I hope you realize just how important this lesson on spiritual warfare actually is. Engaging your mind, knowing your enemy, standing your ground, and valuing your allies. They're they're so essential, all of them, to just success in spiritual warfare, to not stumbling. If you don't get this, if you still don't think this is that big of a deal or real or important, I want to leave you with a final thought here. It's no accident that God used Peter to write these words. See, Peter knew spiritual warfare better than anyone. He knew it. He knew it was real. He knew what to do. Peter loved Jesus. He followed Jesus. He was zealous for Jesus. He thought he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus, but if you remember, Satan had other plans for Peter. See, right before the crucifixion, one day before, Satan was at work to destroy the faith of the disciples of Christ. Judas was a false believer. Satan had no problem with him. Easy to control his will. Not so for Peter, the leader of the disciples. His faith was real. 
So Satan devised a different plan for Peter, a plan to stumble his faith and to make him ineffective. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 reads, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And notice from this text and others, Satan can never do anything outside the sovereign will of God. He's not free. But this request was granted. God was going to allow Satan to tempt Peter to deny Jesus and to have doubt and denial. But Peter would not be lost. Jesus continues. He says, but I have prayed for you, not that this wouldn't happen, but that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God was actually going to use this incident in Peter's life to strengthen his faith and to make him stronger in the Lord. For the time being, though, Peter, how does he respond? He says, Lord, with you I'm ready both to go to prison and to death. And he said, Jesus said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Now what happens next? It's not Peter's denial. That's not next. There's something that happens even before that. There's another incident that squeezes in here. See, right after this exchange of words, where does Jesus go? To the garden. He goes to the garden of Gethsemane to pray because Christ himself is being tempted. Who does Jesus take with him? Peter, James, and John. What does he tell them? He tells them to keep watch, to be sober, to be alert. He was saying this to them both physically and spiritually because he knew that they also were going to be tempted. And what happened? They fell asleep, physically and spiritually. And so Jesus said to them, Mark 14, 37, 38, he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter did not heed these words. You see, his mind was not engaged. He was not being sober-minded. He was not alert, looking out for temptation. Secondly, he did not know his enemy. He vastly underestimated the one who wanted to sift him like wheat. He was not looking out for it. And finally, Peter did not stand his ground. He did not stand firm in in the truth, in his faith, in his commitment to Christ, and what he knew. Jesus was arrested later, and Peter followed. But in that courtyard, little did he know that Satan was right there, sifting him like wheat, tempting him to deny his Lord. Peter was not ready for this spiritual warfare, so he stumbled. Luke 22, 61 through 62 reads, The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. It's never worth it. Sin is never worth it. Peter thought he was buying some comfort for himself, some, some protection, some ease, by denying Jesus. If I just deny him, they won't arrest me, they won't kill me, I'll be okay. He thought he was buying himself some some freedom. But it's never worth it. 
as he found out. It would have been better for him to have been killed than to have denied Christ. But thankfully, the story does not end here. Jesus died, and he rose again. And then he spoke again to Peter in John 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Three times Jesus says this, and three times Peter affirms his love for the Lord. See, Peter stumbled, but Jesus was not going to let him fall. He just needed to learn to depend on him, to trust him. That way he would never stumble again. Verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter was not finished with suffering in this life. He was not finished with being tempted. He was going to have a hard road ahead of him. But would he deny Jesus again just to get out of a little suffering? And not on your life. But how is he going to endure? How is he going to stand all the temptations that would come his way? Two words. Follow me. That's all he had to do. That's all he needed to do. Just follow the Savior. And that's what Peter did. And now he's telling us to do the same in 1 Peter. Peter knows spiritual warfare. And he learned the hard way. And so learn a lesson from him and take seriously these marching orders. Satan comes as a lion. But just remember that we are following a greater lion. A lion from the tribe of Judah, and no one can overpower him. So in all things, in all difficulties, in all temptations, he is our guide and our shield, and he will not let us fall. But we must follow him so as not to stumble. So follow him, and you too will find the victory in the battles and the war of this life. our precious God and Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. What can we do but bow down at your feet and worship you? You're our our rock, you're our shield, you're our shade and our protection. Lord, we are lost and we are helpless and we are weak before our own flesh, before the world, and before the, the enemy of our souls, Satan and his fallen angels. There's nothing we can do to win that war or to stand up against them. The only thing we can do has been done for us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you for winning the war by dying on the cross and rising victoriously. And Our life is in you now. That's all we have. It's our only hope. And day to day, our only hope is simply to stand firm on you as well, on the solid rock of Christ and your truth. I pray for your help for all of us. Satan and demons would love nothing more than to tempt us all and see us all stumble in our faith and to become ineffective for you. Help us to all stand firm here. Give us eyes to see and a vision to know the enemy, to stay sharp in our mind, 
and then just to stand our ground and help us to bolster one another as we all seek to walk this walk and endure in the faith. We do offer you, Lord, because we love you, we cherish you, and want to be with you, and we look forward to the day when, when you return and, and the war and the battles are completely won. Thank you for that. May we rest in you. In your name we pray. Amen.